0: This is Joel Kotkin. And this is Marshall Toplansky. And you're listening to the Feudal Future podcast. Our society is being rapidly reduced to a feudal state, a process now being exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions of small businesses are near extinction. Millions more are losing their jobs. And many others will be stuck in the status of propertyless serfs. The big winners have been the expert class of the clerisy, and most of all, the tech oligarchs, who benefit as people rely more on algorithms than human relationships. With
1: this, around the world, the middle class is becoming more squeezed than ever, and it's having profound economic, social, and spiritual implications. Here on the show, we're having conversations with business, government, and citizen leaders like you to get to the core of these issues and explore how we can work together to form a better future than the one we're headed towards. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Feudal Future podcast. I'm Marshall
0: Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin.
1: And we are delighted today to have with us Austin Williams, who's the director of the Future Cities Project. Uh, Austin is uh, a senior lecturer at the Kingston School of Art and an honorary research fellow in architecture at a university in Suzhou in China. He's been an architect, uh, a film producer, uh, a journalist, and is China correspondent for the Architectural Review. Um, He's founder of the Mantown Human and the author of China's Urban Revolution. Welcome Austin. Thank you both very much indeed, a pleasure to be here. Well, we're delighted technology? to have you here, and we want to focus today on China's urban development.
0: Sure. So, I guess really to start off, I mean, when we look at the emerging great cities of the 21st century, it would seem that several of them are going to be in China. Um, what, what, how would you describe Chinese urbanism as opposed to, um, you know, the urbanist uh, uh, pattern we see in the West
1: um,
2: well, messy, um, uh, ill thought out, hastily conceived, but I suppose you could draw the same comparison with cities in America or in the West, uh, a hundred years ago. So I you know they're learning the same lessons, possibly learning them faster and better than, than we ever did. Um, but you know, there's also the fact that, um, the center, the idea of the city center or the heart of the city, all those conceptions that we always talk about in Western urban seminars uh, seem to be slightly absent uh, in in China, partly because obviously the social organization of China is such that civil society doesn't really exist in the same way and form that we might imagine it to, to in the West. There is no kind of independent Uh, uh, negotiated space Uh, it's all pretty well uh, controlled and managed Um, but you know cities uh, have made incredible um, uh, you know the the speed of development has been so remarkable the urbanization process from when I went to China in uh, 2010 uh, and I was there for six and a half years um, even that the the rapidity of development was kind of startling the first ever high speed um, rail train network had been built in 2010. And now they've got the biggest high-speed rail network of all the countries in the world put together. Uh, you see, there's something there's something miraculous and something terrifying, uh, beautiful and ugly uh, about that. Um, and I think that that's the, the, the thing we have to kind of recognize, that there's mistakes have been made along the way. So we can kind of go into, if you want to, kind of the, the use of Russian planning policy in its early formulations within China and the mess that that made of things and the technocratic approach that they have to urban scale. But, you know, you've got to, as Mao said, I think, you know, you have to break some eggs sometimes to, to make an omelette. So in the fact that they have to, they've made those mistakes, they're learning from them and rapidly kind of um, developing. Uh, I think there's some fantastic potential for a lot of cities and some of those cities may crumble and fold. But, we well, you know, also
1: the, the, the huge... Migration from countryside into urban areas in China over the past three decades, um, must have brought with it social pressures and lifestyle changes that were hard for ordinary Chinese people to adapt to as they're coming in. What, what are the biggest pressures that you see in modern Chinese society in the cities?
2: Well, it's difficult to analyze it in just in the way that we might have those kind of romantic notions about you know urban memories or or memories lost in the process of urbanization because the mindset if you see urbanization as positive or if you see development and progress and all those kind of words that we've lost sight of maybe in the west if you see those things as positive then maybe you can accept a bit of the challenges that come with it Uh, so you know when you say about urban migration from the rural areas that's very true there's like uh, in the first 10 years of this century, the equivalent of the entire population of America moved into into cities, and and in the next 10 years, the s- same number will will also move into cities. But then you look at Shenzhen. Shenzhen was a a place which didn't exist, you know, 300,000 people living in fishing villages, and then the, a city of 15 million people built around them. You know, they didn't have to move. I've so been again before you know,
0: and after. <laughs>
2: absolutely, absolutely. So that idea of, you know, there are places within Shenzhen, uh, Bai Shizhou and those little places which are effectively still villages, which are trying, struggling to maintain a certain village identity, but they still recognize that the development, the progress, the uh, the um, escape from poverty, the full bellies that will come from maybe engaging in the city and its its progress uh, and dynamic is better than staying in their, in their hovels. So they still have that mentality. That said, I think there is a, a moment happening in some of the other cities, maybe Beijing, where there is a recognition that the speed and development now really has to change. So because it's been done so fast, urban scale is monstrous. Uh, There's incredibly ugly streets. It's traffic congested and polluted and everything, and people are beginning to move out. That development of the middle class, as we would call it in the West, uh, has led to a certain kind of anxiety in the sense that there could be a better development. So now China is thinking about urban parks in the same way that maybe, you know, Olmsted. Uh, Daniel Burnham did, you know, maybe a hundred years ago. So that is now starting to encroach a little bit more on the urban mentality within China, which they didn't have time for, you know, twenty years ago. It was about build, 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 build a new country, build a new, a new economy. So now they've reached that kind of um, that stage in the
0: curve. Where they but what think uh, about humanity? But you mentioned the lack of civic culture, which is you know scary. Um, even if you make changes, um, are those changes going to be what people really want, or are they? Really, changes that are more um, serve the economic and political interests at the top. Well, everything is done to serve the party, Joe. Right. You know what I mean, the, so it's not even
2: about China; it's the party. So it's the defense of the party. So whenever you hear about people designing harmonious cities, you know harmony means uh, social quietude or whatever it mm-hmm. might be. Just so you don't have any upset. I mean, it's very the famous example. Uh, of the, I think you mentioned it in your book actually, Joel, the, the Marxist party or the Marxist society in Beijing, who has closed down because they were starting to mobilise <laughs> independently and start to think critically. Uh, you can't have that. So the Chinese state always kind of lets things out, you know, starts to develop, maybe is a bit freer, starts to allow free thinking and a little bit of you know, critical engagement with ideas, and then if it goes just that bit too far, you know, you you kind of rein it back in again. So it's it. So the maintenance of the party and the maintenance of this of these um, social harmony of the state is fundamental. How far they can go while still maintaining that without breaking it
0: is is the, you know the sixty four million dollar question. Um, is is what's happening in Hong Kong illustrative of what could be happening elsewhere? Uh, yeah, but it makes you wonder what's happening in Hong Kong. You know, if if you think Hong Kong
2: is a is a dynamic hotbed of protest, or you think it's an incredibly efficient clampdown, um, I'd probably go with the latter. You know, they're getting away with it. It's remarkable that they've done that uh, to a to a pretty fundamental democracy. Um, so it's a warning to Chinese people. And also, when you actually when there's been surveys done within uh, Guangzhou, within Shenzhen, and that kind of area about Hong Kong, whereas you know, five years ago, the ambition was always to to travel to Hong Kong to see a little bit of what life in the West could bring. Now people are much more afraid of Hong Kong, much more worried, much more happy to see the clampdown because it's destabilizing what's going on in in Shenzhen. So it's a it's a fascinating country for social stability and how they manage it without
1: complete un, uh, unrest, partly because there's no there's no structure to have unrest. Well, and, and speaking of how they manage it, the whole hukou system is really critical for being able to move people to wherever the the planners want them to be. Is that, um, are we seeing any strains in that? Is that as, especially as we build these uh, larger inland urban areas, um, that people may not have kind of like a immediate desire to go to, uh, how important is um How important is the hukou system to be able to make the whole thing work? Well, a hukou is always, you know, taken
2: under advisement. It's always kind of um, having some of the rough edges knocked off it. So it's a little bit unrecognizable to what it was 50 years ago. But, you know, it's an absolute disgrace for uh, freedom, freedom of movement. There There is no freedom of movement, even though you go to China and you can get on any train you want to. But you can't settle. I mean, I, I, if I might say for some of your listeners, just in case they don't know what the hukou system is, it's effectively, it's, it's an internal passport effectively. Right. So if you're born in the countryside or if your parents are born in the countryside, you get given this status, which says you're a rural dweller. And from the good old days, that meant that you had kind of ownership, inverted commas, to the land, that whatever you grew was yours. So you were a, you were a rural citizen. Uh, if you were born in the city, you had a, a certificate which said that you were a city dweller, which meant you didn't own the land at all. Um, but you had access to services and healthcare and free education, which this, which the rural dwellers didn't have. And there was always that kind of disparity. So if a rural dweller wants to come to the city, that's fair enough. In some ways now it wasn't 25 years ago, but now you can. But if you want to have access to a decent school, sorry, uh, you don't have that right. You have to either go back to where you came from uh, or you get a, a kind of a migrant school, uh, kind of quite a low quality. But what's, what's interesting um, in some ways is the fact that sometimes those hookahs can be given and taken away at random. So sometimes when you see these classifications of urban development and your know, new cities or new towns being developed, sometimes that's simply because They've taken the rural hukou of people living in an area and given them an urban hukou, which makes them urban dwellers, which makes that area suddenly urban. So you can have cities and towns created just by exchange of paperwork, rather than actually building anything. So uh, you know, it's all game playing in China. You know, what I mean, it's made, a lot of it's for the Western um, perception as much as kind of
0: internal. But yeah, it's uh, there's lots of funny little things like that going on in China all the time. But are we seeing an emergence of a, if you will, not to use the old phrase, new urbanism, but a, a different kind of urbanism, particularly, uh, um, you know, I read a lot of Chinese science fiction and, um, you know, their vision of this future is so, you know, completely controlled. And and the, you know, other words, in in the West, it strikes me that, our cities, you know, San Francisco, LA, London, Paris, are increasingly chaotic and and somewhat dangerous in parts. Um, is China using uh, Marshall's? Uh, does a lot of work in artificial intelligence. Is is, is, uh, is this something that we have to be watching? Is this how our cities may end up being monitored? And and how successful has it been so far? Oh, it's remarkable in China. I
2: mean, I was driving with a friend in Suzhou in Jiangsu province. And um, this must, must have been maybe two and a half years ago, three years ago. Uh, he was driving. I was in this passenger seat. He kind of ran a red light or he went over the speed limit. I can't remember what it was. He went through it. There was a ping on his phone. And he'd just been charged uh, $75 taken directly from his bank account. Um, <laughs> facial, facial recognition straight away. Through the system. And you think how wonderful. And how terrible, you know what I mean? And that's, that mm-hmm. kind of sums up the, the um, contradictions of China. So, yes, I mean, there's monitoring gone crazy if you put a foot wrong? Um, I mean, the whole coronavirus pandemic has actually legitimated in many Western eyes that idea about what the, the use and benefits of states monitoring. So, you know, it, it will be coming to a town near you, I'm, I'm fairly sure. But that facial recognition or actually having your medical records on your phone, which show green, If you want to get into a shop or a bank or get on a train, you have to show your mobile phone. And if it shows the wrong color, you ain't allowed on. If you have done petty misdemeanors, you can be disallowed from traveling on a train for up to six months, you know, whatever. So it's an incredibly authoritarian system. The fact that we're in a coronavirus pandemic where authoritarianism seems to be the order of the day, it seems to be a little bit more acceptable. Um, But hopefully civil liberties will out and people will recognize the nefariousness of
1: it all. I'm, I've am i been following a lot of the news from China about what appears to be kind of a um, clamping down on wealthy outliers like the Jack Ma's of the world, who um, were originally kind of the exemplars of Chinese success, but now may be a, um, you know, a nail that sticks up that needs to be pounded down. Um, what do you make of that? Are you are, is is this part of what you were talking about earlier of the kind of reeling in uh, trend going on in China, or is there something else going on?
2: Um, well, there's all, there's always lots going on under the surface that maybe we'll never know. But I mean, Jack Ma just uh, said too much about what he really thought um, about the lack of dynamism within the economy and the lack of real on, entrepreneurship and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, he basically upset the people at the top. Uh, so he's been called in for a bit of re-education. Uh, we might see him minus his fingernails in a couple of months' time. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll apologize. It's that kind of old Maoist idea of, of um, public apology as well, which is uh, quite... Remarkable. And again, actually coming to a university near you, too. Yes, I think I
0: think it's already there.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, that that idea that you have to stand up and say, I'm really sorry for having the audacity to have independent thought um, and critical opinions. <laughs> uh, and I won't do it again. Um, Bring <laughs> it back into the fold. But it was only in 2000. I mean, it is quite in- interesting that it's the it's the Communist Party of China. Yes. I mean, regardless of whether they are or not communist. Um, they only allowed businessmen in uh, in 2000, 20 years ago, because obviously they were the you know bourgeois, um, you know Western apologists um, uh, for capitalism. And but but because they were becoming the, the society was growing and they needed them, then they brought them into the fold. But not everybody is you know not every business leader is actually in the Communist Party. Some people don't want to be. Um, so yeah, the, the 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 state will kind of clamp down on on outliers but also it will obviously needs to allow them to flex their muscles a little bit. But, you know, you can't become too powerful. It's, I mean, since I mentioned uh, Suzhou and Jiangsu province, Suzhou was a very early city development uh, with Hangzhou and it became a very powerful, historic kind of city. And it's retained that level of wealth. It's a very, very wealthy city with you know, Fortune 500 companies now investing there and everything. And obviously Beijing and Shanghai, which again have their own tensions, but Shanghai will not allow Suzhou to develop so much um, material and economic power, which will then reflect in political authority to rival and challenge uh, Shanghai, so it is disinvesting. So you can often see a lot of you know, there's no airport for Suzhou, for example. You know, they, so they will not allow certain things to develop in order to keep you back in your box, just know your place. So it's a there's an incredible tension, and obviously Suzhou, as this example, um, you know, just to take it to ex- ex- extremes, are getting frustrated and pissed off, if I might use the vernacular. So. Um, there's a there's a protest and a pressure pushing back against it, and appeals being made to Beijing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's lots of stuff happening under the surface which will never be revealed because that's party politics. But there is a genuine tension about people who have ne- never been allowed to fly free like they would have uh, maybe in the in the West. So um, yeah, it's an
1: intriguing dilemma. Those decisions, those decisions about the airport is a wonderful story, by the way. I appreciate that. I didn't I didn't know that. The um, uh, the decision to not put an airport there—a Beijing-driven decision, a a Shanghai-driven decision—you um, know who actually says no, you can't do an airport.
2: Well, I mean, there's there's local. First of all, it's it's the party, yes. So within the party, there are various kind of organizations like planning authorities and you know development and all the rest of it. So there's a ministry for development. Um, So they will obviously be making proposals and they will be scheduling how they best develop their urban development. But so it's kind of it's a it's a hidden thing. I mean, I've been to a couple of Communist Party planning meetings within Shanghai where the majority of the time is taken with fantastically intelligent um, party apparatchiks who, you know, I've got 25 degrees from Yale and Berkeley, and goodness knows where, who come back and say we really, you know, we really still need to learn from Western urban development models. They still haven't yet developed the confidence to be able to assert something on a Chinese scale. So everything has to be kind of legitimated through, you know, evidence-based somewhere else. Um, but in terms of Suzhou, the the example of Suzhou, which is a historic, you know, UNESCO heritage city. But then they built SIP, Suzhou Industrial Park, or Suzhou Singapore Industrial Park, as it was funded by Singapore, um, which is now the equivalent. So it's gone from a three million person city to a seven, eight million person city. Um, The the story goes, which I think is true, is that actually Singapore were coming into China to look at where they could invest, what cities they could invest in. And they went to Nanjing and they went all around that area. And uh, Suzhou was being overlooked. In that way, I was just describing that they weren't really allowed to to, to look at Suzhou, but on the way back, as the Singaporean, no, the Singaporeans wanted to invest in um, the uh, East Bank of of Shanghai, but Shanghai sensibly thought, oh, "We'll keep hold of that one." Yes, um, but anyway, as the Singaporeans were leaving, apparently the uh, the mayor of Suzhou sent out like an emissary to waylay them like a highwayman stopping them on the road and saying, actually, we've got all this agricultural land in this fantastic area slot. We could do wonders with it. Just get rid of all the agricultural people and we could build a new city for you. And the Singaporeans were sold on it. So there was this kind of underhand politicking that went on. um, And, you know, the rest is history. I don't know what happened to the mayor, mind. He got moved. So (laughs) I haven't followed his demise. Very interesting.
1: it's it's kind of half central planning and half chamber of commerce, uh, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and half, uh, you know, just just um, uh, negotiating and, uh, yep. and trying to work out deals on the side.
0: Deal, right? That's but that. you know, when on the one hand uh, it would seem to me that we we have uh, much to be to learn from China, but on the other hand, um, when I've been there i've been astounded how incredibly inhuman the scale is um you know you walk around the the parts of beijing where um it's one high-rise building after another there's nobody on the street um and then what's interesting is when you go to the old concessions like in Tanjin, you go to the french concession and all of a sudden it's lively it's two three-story buildings you know Diverse architecture. Is, is there any kind of rebellion against the kind of kind of city that's being developed? It's like China strikes me as like increasingly like Hudson Yards on steroids. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, there's there's a lot of protest and
2: it's a bit it's a bit like, you know, the Communist Party up until the two thousand mid 2000s. Were made up of engineers. They were all the all the kind of the party officials were engineers because it was an engineering project. You had to build a new, new country. Um, now most of the Politburo bureau are made up of kind of social scientists. God help us, mm. um, you know. But because they're doing a little bit more kind of soft science, soft sell. Um, so there is that kind of shift which has happened, you know, since nineteen ninety nine. Whatever you know, in the, in the in the new millennium, there's been a movement to recognise that there's still a requirement to build and you know, build fast and house people and you know, develop the economy, while at the same time recognizing that there's a, there's a little bit of inhumanity uh, happening there. So when you look down in, Shenzhen is a really good example because it's near to Hong Kong, um, because it's near to kind of the Asian um, dynamic economies, there's been a bit of an incorporation of some of that architecture. So, you know, you, you have different roof heights, you have a little bit of, you know, topography built into the buildings themselves. Uh, And the streets are wider and narrower and all the rest of it. You know, you go to the north of China and it's that kind of plot line, south facing, that's what you're going to get. So there's a little bit of experimentation which is allowed in Shenzhen. I mean, remember, Shenzhen is where Deng Xiaoping went in 1992 to talk about the opening up of the country because it was so far away from Beijing that he thought he could get rid of the the bureaucrats having a go at him by coming right to the very south and, and opening up the economy. Um, so there's experiments happening all over the country, and there's, an, there's a, a certain concern amongst the, the central party state that they might be losing control of some of these areas and the influence they're getting through their own dynamic. But I think that the, the, the sense of architectural schools and the number of architectural graduates now coming out in schools and urbanism is becoming very popular, Um that, Ten years ago, when I went to China, there were not that many architecture schools, but they were all called engineering schools because uh, you you, know, you went in there. You never chose to go to study architecture because your parents told you what you were going to study. But the idea that you were going to be an architect, but it was an engineering project. Now they have started to allow a little bit more. You know, you can now study literature or art or theater in China. That was unheard of ten years ago. Right. So uh, that opening up of creativity, which, as we said earlier, has its own problems, of creative thinking, um, is beginning to have an influence. So more people are now, especially having studied in America or the West and gone back to China and seen the possibilities of small scale urban interventions, are beginning to look more locally at building pocket parks, You know all those kind of William H. White stuff from 50 years ago. Um, is now coming into China. And on top of that, the Chinese state has recognized what Marshall was saying, which is that so many people have migrated from the countryside, which is kind of congesting the cities, that they are, in typical Chinese fashion, they're forcibly pushing them back into the countryside, while at the same time talking about countryside redevelopment. So there's a lot more architects now who are building in the country, building you know really nice architecture, but on rural scale. Whether that's a, whether that's a defeat for the idea of you know building a better world or whether that's you know nice nuanced kind of architecture is for you to decide.
1: or whether or not we have to look forward to uh, China 2.0 20 years from now that's a softer more in, more humanitarian driven uh, uh, face to it
0: but, but let me just you know one last thing I wanted to get into which is what I've noticed in East Asia in general and uh, a lot of work I've done in Singapore and uh, even more so in China, when you talk to young people, they don't want to have kids. The The environment that's being developed, in the, and this is something that I think no one has figured out yet, which is if you force people into small spaces and if you force them to live in this uh, you know very hyper-competitive, high-density environment, they're not going to have children. Um, has anyone thought about that? I mean, because long-term, it would seem to me China's biggest crisis is demographic.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, they've thought about, obviously they, they got rid of the one-child policy for that very reason, um, to encourage people to have kids. But of course, because you know it's in, inculcated that you shouldn't, that it was a criminal thing to do, uh, plus people were beginning to get worried about the economy and their jobs in the recession in 2008. Very few people took up, up took up on it. I mean, ironically, they've also had a counterposition with the Uyghurs, where the Uyghurs were allowed to have many children uh, until the 2000s, in which they've been stopped uh, and forced to have one. So there's this kind of weird thing going on within the within the racism in China. But yeah, there's but it's it's also part of that you know progressive, if you excuse the phrase, development of society, like in the West, where you know maybe in the past in the feudal era. You no, know, you would have had a big family because that's the way it worked, and you safeguarded each other and you look after each other and all the rest of it. And then as society developed and you had you could have more autonomy, that you then didn't rely on all those old familial ways of looking after your grandmother in the back bedroom that you thought, actually, I'll buy her a flat and I'll go and live on my own. Thank you very much and have a party. So there's a lot of that coming up where it's really challenging some of the old Confucian uh, troops and the old social organizations in society. And again, that's also very dangerous for China as a structure. You know, they're very worried about that kind of social fragmentation. They want to encourage uh, family harmony. One of the things the Chinese state did about uh, 10 years ago to encourage family harmony was to give the authority to grandmothers that they could prosecute their sons and daughters or grandsons and daughters uh, if they didn't come back for the um, the tomb cleaning day, which is a family get-together. So if you didn't come back for that, they'd prosecute you, and they thought that would be a way of building family harmony okay. rather, rather than increasing resentment. But, you know, if you have a technocratic society, sometimes they just kind of come up with these technical solutions which undermine the very thing they're trying to create.
1: Well, the good news is now if you get prosecuted for that, they can instantly identify who you are and find you. <laughs> <laughs> and they can cut off your credit and uh, exactly, exactly, right, you're, exactly, You're you're out of uh, you're out of Alipay. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, Austin Williams, thank you so much for uh, sharing a half hour with us. This is really fascinating, and we're looking forward to getting further comment from you as China progresses and, and just see have you take the temperature for us to say uh, here's where they
2: are. That's very kind of you. In, in coronavirus pandemic, it's always nice to talk to anybody.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and and good luck getting the uh, vaccine into the uk and uh, yeah. and solving these problems and we hope you stay healthy that's very kind of you same okay. to, to you both lovely talking to you Thanks. great, great. thanks austin